Reality Radio Entertainment presents Behind the Curtain with your host, Kathy Barrett. Welcome to Behind the Curtain, a show about life and how we navigate down the not-so-yellow brick road of it. I'm your host, Kathy Barrett. Thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Juan Figueroa, and Juan is running for the position of Sheriff of Ulster County against incumbent Paul Van Blarkham. Ulster County makes up 20 towns, three villages, and the city of Kingston. So it's approximately 1,150 square miles. 2,200 miles of roadways, and it has an estimated population of 182,000 people. Now, Juan is here today to share his vision for policing and to tell us why he is deserving of our vote on September 13th, folks, which is primary day. It's really important that each and every one of us exercise our American voice now by getting out and voting. Our community is facing tough challenges right now, from the opioid crisis to immigration issues to civil unrest. America has never been more divided, which is why it is vital for each of us to vote for officials whose intent is to unify our communities instead of dividing them. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Juan Figueroa to the show. Juan, thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, thank you for having me, Kathy. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and the folks that are listening. Well, I'm so glad you're here with us because I really do admire your vision. So I'm very excited for other people out there that are not familiar with who you are to, you know, to hear what your plans are to unify this community in a way that hasn't happened before. Before we get into your platform and talking about the changes you want to implement and your vision, so on and so forth, for Ulster County, let's talk about your background. Where are you from? Tell us a little bit about the, the personal side of Juan Figueroa. Sure. Sure. I, um, I'm the middle child of four kids. Um, my mom and dad are, um, you know, came from Puerto Rico in the 1950s. They got married in 1958. Um, there were uh, five of us. Um, I had my oldest brother named Junior, who passed away at a young age with a, a heart condition, and oh. uh, one older brother, one older sister, and one uh, younger brother, although I look older than all of them. I don't know why that is, but I've always been the, uh, I guess you could say, the, the, the prankster of the, of the group. Uh, you know, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, being and having a good sense of humor is important, when when you have struggles in life, and and we do have a, you know, the Figueroa family has a odd sense of humor, but it, it's it's very funny. Um, so I, I tell people that you know I come from an island, and but that island is Manhattan, and uh, I, I say that because I'm trying to be funny, being Puerto Rican American. Uh, my father worked at Lenox Hospital for 42 years, big union guy, and uh, we were all born at Lenox Hill. Uh, because he can take his break from work and go upstairs and, and visit his newborn child and my mom. Um, uh-huh. We lived in the Bronx, and in the late 1970s, um, they moved us up to the town of Platicale. Um Platicale has a history of its own. Um, uh, it was a very diverse town. Um, if, if folks don't know about the history of, of Platicale, they can Google um, Las Villas de Platicale, 
And so there were these entertainment galas in the 1920s that the Spanish started. And eventually the first Puerto Rican villa opened up in 1948. It was Sunny Acres. And Hmm. the town population would triple in the summer. Um, People couldn't afford to travel to Puerto Rico, so they would charter buses from New York City and going to these uh, entertainment galas. Well, people like my family uh, had relatives that owned uh, some of these establishments, and so they worked at these local places in the summer, and they decided to buy property and and stay. And as you know, the Big Apple, Plattica was a big, um, you know, area where they had a lot of apple farms, so, you know, that industry needed help. So folks would work in the fall uh, in, in that industry. So... You know, most of those locations are closed now. Um, we used to make up 50%. The Latino community made up 50, about 50% of the town. We're down to mm. about 28%, and it's it's always been a commuter town. My father was a commuter that, you know, went down to the city. Uh, everyone I went to high school with in Walkill High School, um, you know, a lot of their parents commuted. I became a commuter. And so being hour, an hour and 20 minutes from New York City, it's it's still a, a place where you can commute to have a large home and live in the country, and you know uh, go to New York City because that's where the the higher paying jobs are in this community. What a culture shock, though, that must have been for you guys. I mean, coming up for the summers is one thing, but to come from the Bronx up into the country like this, what was the most challenging aspect of adjusting to your new surroundings when your when your parents actually relocated permanently? I guess the, the the biggest thing when you come up from New York City is, you know, you have to have a car. And we only had one car in the family. Both my mom and dad worked. And uh, when I was uh, 16 years old, I got my, my junior driver's license. And at 4.30 in the morning, I had to take my father to, um, to the train station uh, in Beacon so he can go to work and then bring the car back so my mother can take it so she can go to work and then get on the school bus and I was always so scared of being stopped because I was violating my my junior driver's license privileges, and uh, <laughs> but I guess wow, that was, that was uh, you know um, one of the biggest things is is obviously uh, having one car in a family, but going to school in Walkill High School where it was you know you went from going in you know I was at the junior high school in the Bronx Herman Ritter going to majority, you know, Latino, African-American school. We did have some um, white kids there, but not a lot, to mm-hmm. a complete opposite uh, being really a true minority in a school like Walkill High School. But there were there were some great teachers in Walkill. Uh, going to that school was what made me who I am today. I owe a lot in particular to a, a Mr. Lenio who – I even invited to my retirement from the Marine Corps, and I'm sure we'll talk about the Marine Corps in a minute. Coming to Platykill and, and, and living in this town and being in this county, um, it, it means a lot to me, and uh, that's why I'm still here. Well, that's really fascinating. First of all, the history you shared, I'm quite interested in going and, and researching more about it. I was not aware about that. Secondly, the family values that you hold, I think, are really quite beautiful and something that is really needed in our society. We kind of lost track of these things with all of these electronic gadgets and we're all up in our own world sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's quite touching that your family came through a tragedy to lose 
you know, I'm sorry for your loss, but to lose a child that young in the family unit is, is really, really a tough thing to come together as a group and continue to prosper and enjoy life is, uh, you know, is a tribute to who you are and, and, and how you were raised. So let's talk about systemic racism that exists in, in this country. And as a young Latino man, when you're moving up here and you become the minority in this community, were you embraced by the community? Please, let's uh, talk about that for a second before we move on to the Marine Corps. Sure. I, um, you know, I got to be, uh, I remember the days in Walter High School, and sure, there was some tension there when it came to being different. Um, but the way I was brought up with my, my dad was a, a pretty stern guy, and uh, he basically, you know, instilled in us that, um, and of course, my, my father was a, a, a white Puerto Rican, and my mom was, as they say, trienya, brown. So mm-hmm. even in our own culture, we have our own little ways of, of dealing with with race uh and so the 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 way we were brought up was that it didn't matter what the color of your skin is you can't change somebody's mind that already has that mindset and that's something that is learned whether it's from your 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 parents or your uncles or something that you your environment but uh you know but if you see a bunch of kids playing in a pay, playground they don't really look at race uh, they just want to play and yeah. so my dad and my mom always said to me that as long as you work hard and you do what you're supposed to do, that race isn't really going to matter. That even the most racist person will will say, you know what, that one guy isn't that bad. He's a, he's a hard worker. Uh, mm. I'm not going to change his opinion on race, but he's going to know that I'm able to do that job, whatever job it is that that I'm doing. So, you know, I was embraced by the local community here. Um, you know, it was uh, it was not easy, but but it was uh, it, it was done, and it made me the person that I am today to look at things, uh, you know, objectively, and and what's right is right, and what's wrong is wrong, and and so I was you know lucky to be uh, you know to move up here and and have that experience, um, and it it goes back to community policing in a way because you get to understand people when you go to school with them, when you're on the bus with them, when they're, they're your neighbors. Um, if you don't have that growing up, then you don't understand other people's cultures. And and that's something that, that I was able to do and that I bring to the table at any job, at any level that, that, I, that I can bring it to. That's because you have that training, that foundation from an early age, and this is exactly the same kind of philosophy that, you know, from reading your, your, um, not to skip over your experience, which I want to go through, but when you have that kind of foundation, you want to spread it and you want to share it because you want to see, have other people not only incorporate that into their daily existence because you know it's going to create positive change. So I, exactly. I really admire and, you. Well, you that. know, it's funny. I just thought of a story <laughs> from Walk Hill High School, and I said something earlier about one of my favorite teachers, a Mr. John Lenio, who uh, believes in Ukrainian rights, and uh, he's an amazing uh, teacher. And, uh, you know, my foundation is based off of who he is and, and what he brought as a teacher and how important teachers are. So mm. he had this mock trial and. Um, high school where he brought in students from study hall 
and they asked for a volunteer who wanted to be the defense counsel, which I stood up and said, sure, I'll do it. And there was a, a, a gentleman that, uh, who actually, uh, name was Joe DeSavo, really smart guy, became an FBI agent, and he's a big boss up, up in Boston now. I haven't seen him since high school, but I've heard about him over the years. But what was interesting about that was, you know, he came in with his suit and tie and a leather suitcase like a real attorney. <laughs> I came in with my sweatshirt, sneakers, and hand-me-down jeans from my older brother. And we did this mock trial for about three days, and his best friend was the foreman of the jury. And um, when the case was said and done, I actually won it. In reality, I shouldn't have won it because it was a, a, a case – based on case law that Mr. Lenio uh, put out to us to do. And so I actually won the case, and he came up to me afterwards, and he says, uh, you know, Juan, you should really think about doing something in law, because that was magnificent. And that's wow. where it all started. Thank Mr. That's... Lenio and Walter. Well, I thank him, too. That's really quite a story <laughs> and, and very impressive. So let's go over quickly your background because I want people to know you're a U.S. Marine, you, straight out of high school, active duty, five years, 18 years in the reserves. What experience right. and life lessons did you take away from that? Well, what was great about the Marine Corps is that I, I got to see the world. I went to about 12 countries, um, and uh, there's no way I would have been able to do that on my own and afford to do such a trip. And um, I joined the Marine Corps after the, the, the bombings in Beirut in October of 1983. And mm-hmm. I wanted to go in so quick to do my part as an American that I went during Christmas time, <laughs> December the 5th, 1983, I went to boot camp. And, wow. um, and so what was interesting about the, uh, the Marine Corps was the folks that you meet from throughout the country, whether they were from Tennessee, Mississippi, South Carolina, uh, California, uh, Oregon, and the different backgrounds and people and, and the different cultures and different languages. And everywhere we went, you know, whether it was Okinawa, Japan, or, or uh, Saudi Arabia through my career, we always had someone in the unit that understood the culture and knew the language. Uh, and, and that's what makes us different than one else. And those are the things that I bring with me, um, when, when I look uh, at, at, to me, what the meaning of, of, of what it is that we're supposed to do on this great time on earth. And so, you know, meeting different people and having different experiences um, and not, you know, taking that brush and painting everybody with the same color is something that I took out of the military. And, you know, I, I was uh, very fortunate and, and very lucky and Every time I came home, I knew what a great place our country is. And with all its flaws, if you don't like something, you can always elect someone that thinks like you and that will change the law. And, you know, we always have had a course correction in this country whenever things don't look the way we want them to because as, as a group, as a country, as individuals, um, we know how special this place is. And so the military gave me that, that background, gave me that administrative experience when I ran the day-to-day operations. Um, to, you know, my job was to get everybody trained, uh, yes. run the facilities, the, the unit budget, the status of resources, uh, give them the equipment that they need, and make sure that they got home safely when the operation was over with. 
And for 22 years, I did that, both active duty and reserve. I'm a Desert Shield, Desert Storm vet, and uh, uh, vet has actually endorsed me. And so the military, to me, uh, as, a, as a chief warrant officer, which is not an easy rank to get, is one of the most important foundations that anybody that's young, uh, the experiences are, are something that you take with you the rest of your life. And, and so I'm Absolutely. very proud of my service in the Marine Corps and, and what I did as, uh, you know, my part, uh, being from Ulster County, New York, and this great nation. Well, I thank you for your service, as I'm sure everybody tuning in feels the same way. And, and just, you know, you sound like such an amazing person, really. You take the responsibility of the world on your shoulders, which is not really an easy thing to do. But I get your dedication and your desire to make this a better world for all of us. So, again, my appreciation. I, know, I mean, I'm sorry now that we didn't book an hour show, so I don't want to, I really want to get to the point of, uh, you know, what your vision is to run as sheriff. However, you also have just as impressive a uh, resume concerning the New York State, you became a New York State trooper in 1988, and again, police the roads, served as academy instructor, field training officer, and an investigator for the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. One, I can't believe that you uh, because of the investigation that you were working on, that resulted in, in the seizure of over $60 million in cash, 400 kilos of drugs, and the arrest of key figures in the drug trade. In addition to uh, economic crime, you know, investigations, corruption, racketeering, extortion, identity, and vehicle theft. I mean, has, is there anything you haven't covered in your career? <laughs> well, you know, I... Uh... You know, the Special Investigations Unit is a unique unit in the state police. Um, at this point uh, now, you actually have to get interviewed before you can even get into the unit. It, it is a uh, unique unit that does many special things. Uh, it goes after uh, the criminals that try to hide um, uh, within our communities and are hard to detect. And so that unit and, and that experience has led me to work with federal agencies, uh, local agencies, uh, interstate agencies, and even international agencies. Um, so going to court, uh, doing the proper paperwork to get a search warrant, um, the proper uh, evidence procedures, uh, all of that um, was, was uh, the experience of, of SIU. And, uh, and, you know, the people that work there are, are special, very special, uh, dedicated bunch. Um, they, they work long, long hours and have to give up a lot of their own personal lives uh, with their families uh, mm-hmm. because of the hours that, that, that you need to do these type of uh, investigations and cases. And, uh, and, and it takes a toll uh, on families and, and it takes a toll on the individual, but the end result is a safer place um, uh, that we live at here in New York. And so I... You know, I, I was very, very fortunate to be part of the Special Investigations Unit and the, the New York State Police. And, again, I mean, uh, another diverse group in SIU. Yes, and the experience that you 
are bringing forth, uh, you know, if you get elected into the sheriff's department is quite invaluable. I mean, we are facing a heroin and an opioid uh, death crisis here in the country, and it's even affected our little community up here. So let's now get to your, I think you have a four-point plan of some of the changes that you want to make, first one being a comprehensive uh, approach to the opioid uh, crisis. Do you want to talk a little bit about your vision for that if you're elected sheriff? Sure. We, we have been, um, you know, uh, attacking this issue, I believe, in the wrong way. We need to uh, save taxpayers' money, and we need to get people the help that they need. Uh, the first part would be educating folks. Um, I went to a program uh, about a month and a half ago called Not My Child. These are parents right here in Ulster County that did a documentary about their experiences of their kids that were uh, addicted to opioids or heroin, mm. and it was powerful. And one of the things that they uh, were talking about, how, how we unwittingly enable the, the, the youth without even knowing, not catching the red flags of what's going on. So the first thing is to educate teachers, parents, students, as to what to, to look for, and then confronting and identifying the issue and, and getting them help. Um, the, the second part of that, obviously, is that individual must want to get that help. And, and let's get him the help, because if not, he's going to be part of the criminal justice system. And sometimes the criminal justice system isn't the place for some of these individuals. Uh, addiction, uh, to me, it, it's when they commit a crime, and of course, it, it's a multi-layered uh, criminal justice system that we have, from the complainant to the victim to the judge to the jury, uh, to, to corrections, to law enforcement. So all these parties have to be involved in this process. And mm-hmm. the, the important thing is that if we get these individuals that want help, help, that they get the help to kick the habit so they don't have to be part of the criminal justice system, saving thousands of dollars um, to taxpayers um, and getting them help to kick that habit. And so to me, the, the, the reasonable thing to do is that if somebody shows up at the sheriff's office and they drop off their their uh, narcotics and say, I need help, is that I'm going to reach out to the county uh, medical health folks, professionals, and see if we can get this individual help. And, uh, you know, ultimately we all want a safer neighborhood. We need to go after these people that are dealing these drugs in our community. They need to be held accountable. Um, and there's two different things here. We're talking about the, the folks that are dealing heroin, and then we're talking mm-hmm. about the physical industries and doctors that are issuing prescriptions uh, for no reason other than to get somebody addicted and to make money. So right. it, it is a multi-layered uh, attack with different approaches uh, involving families, communities, uh, the medical health professionals, and, mm-hmm. and law enforcement to get a team together to get and tackle this issue so we can get people help and stop them from becoming part of the criminal justice system, and more importantly, stop them from killing themselves and dying from overdoses. So many young kids have been dying in, in, in here in Ulster County uh, of overdoses. And uh, even when they're in uh, jail, they don't get the help that they need. They come out and they think they have the same tolerance level that they had when they went in, and that's how they die of overdoses. Interesting mm-hmm. that they are criminals when they, uh, you know, get arrested, but when they die, they're victims when they die of overdoses. And I find that fascinating and interesting. So we need a different approach, and we need to do it in a way that actually helps people 
And families have to take their responsibility, too. You can't turn your back on someone that, that needs help. You have to step up and confront the individual and tell them that they need help. With that said, you know, tough love does work at times. Sometimes, you know, sending someone uh, to jail because they committed a crime and gets, it, it'll get, get them time to think and get them time to, you know, I've heard parents say, I'd rather have him be in jail because I know that he's safe and he's not going to uh, do drugs. But let's get him help while he's in there if he wants to kick the habit. And this way, when he gets out, he doesn't, uh, you know, die of an overdose. And let's yes, continue and, and to help. Absolutely. And I agree with you. Education is key. And then, you know, it's not just the parents. It's like if the community, you know, really needs to be involved as well. I mean, you grew, I mean, here it's a, we're spread out a little bit more. But, you know, years ago, you grew up in a neighborhood. The woman next door was watching us, <laughs> you know, if my mother was you know, not home or ran to the store or whatever. I think that kind of mentality has to become become more, uh, we have to become more involved in the communities that we live in to know the people and so that we are a support for each other. So I, I agree with what you're saying. You talk about needing an experienced veteran as, such as yourself who is smart and tough on crime. How do you being t- How does your being tough on crime differ from Van Blarkham? Well, the first thing I will tell you is I, you know, I was a, I was a good cop and a great cop, and I had a lot of arrests, uh, of bad, bad, really bad people, and uh, my cases are are, are, are higher end uh, cases, and that experience that I bring to the sheriff's department when I get elected um, will show I'm going to train these folks and make them great and better detectives that they already are. Um, this race is about leadership it's not about the rank and file in the service department because it, the service department has their own identity they're a great organization um mm-hmm. so i bring uh the, the the mentality of being a a uh an investigator uh, a, a trooper a uh a, a puerto rican american a resident in this county uh to the table and crime fighting is something that i've been doing and and serving my community all of my life and, and I intend to bring that to the sheriff's office. And some of the key things that I, I will do, community policing is very important to me. And uh, in order to, to fight crime, we need the cooperation of the community that lives and that we represent. If we don't have that, we're not going to be able to go after uh, the, the, the folks that are committing really bad crimes and are hiding within our communities. So community policing is, is a key factor in, 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 in law enforcement and public safety. Well, I want to read one of your quotes, actually, about community policing. Uh, You say, the fundamental issue we face is a lack of trust and fear of each other. We have to treat people equally, change the mindset, the fear, the level of mistrust on both sides. Mistrust is a two-way street. So how do you take, and what I was saying before, and and this is not to say everybody's racist, I think that the country has an issue with being systemically racist and that there's a great denial about it. So how do you go about retraining officers to look through this new filter, this new paradigm of, you know, community policing? Some of the racism that we see, and we see it, especially those of us that are people of color, is sometimes uh, subconscious. People don't realize uh, you know, what the perception is, how it looks. And so, you know, opening people's eyes to that 
is is key in law enforcement. You know, going into a community and arresting somebody uh, and then trying to get the trust from that same community is not an easy thing to do. Mm. So um, to me, diversification, having somebody, like I said earlier, uh, in the, you know, in the Marine Corps, having someone um, from that neighborhood that is a coworker and understanding him starts to break down those barriers. Um, not just showing up at a community to arrest somebody, but showing up to the community and saying, how you doing? My name is Juan Figueroa. I'm your sheriff. Here's my phone number. Do you have any issues or problems? Do you mind if I, if you give me your name because I have to fill out this sheet uh, as a contact sheet? It has nothing to do with any criminal investigations. It's just a contact sheet of me letting you know who I am. Um, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of times, uh, you know, underprivileged communities, and that could be any race, any color, uh, when law enforcement shows up, they automatically think somebody's going to get arrested and their, vi- their rights are going to get violated. And so we yeah. need to start communicating that, that that's not why we're always there. And mm. the same thing goes on the other side. Um, when you're, you know, we all live in our own bubbles. Uh, as a trooper, my, most of my friends were police officers or fellow Marines or family, not too many friends outside of that. Same thing happens in these communities. They don't have a lot yeah. of friends out of communities and they live in that, that bubble. So, they also need to understand that law enforcement is not always there to treat them badly or to arrest them, and they need to reach out halfway as well. And if we can get both of those things to happen, I think we could start knocking down these barriers. It's not going to be something that's going to be done overnight, but it can happen. Well, I also think that you really bring a, you know, a breath of fresh air in the way that you know, you do look at this, uh, these issues and, the, and you have a very, you bring up an important point that a lot of times the, the racist actions or beliefs are a lack of awareness. It's like if you're programmed one way, that's the, the only way you know. And so by doing some of the things that you're talking about doing, I, I can really see how they could make a profound difference in the police force if you're actively bringing the community with the officers together and working through the, the problems and the challenges so that they that there there is a new trust that can be developed. So, I want to add that sure. police officers come from within our community. They're your family. They're your friends. Um, right. They, they, uh, they sacrifice, work in the midnight shift to make sure that you're safe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we always seem to focus on the negative aspects of law enforcement. Well, you don't yeah. really hear anything that, that's really, you know, good things that happen. You rarely hear that. So if we can mix that up a little bit and push out some of the good stuff that happens, then maybe we can understand each other on both sides. Yes, because let's face it, to do that job, you know, you have to have a desire to want to serve people. And, you know, there are things that happen along the way. And I have many uh, police in my my family. You know, my uncle was a a sergeant. I have cousins who are police officers. You do risk your life every day when you go out into the field. And it is a very, very difficult and pressured job. So I agree with you. There There are not enough good stories. But it's also... On the, on the other side of things, I do think some changes have to be made all over the country because, you know, every day we're reading about, uh, you know, these horrendous shootings that happen. And it may be somebody that's completely innocent. It's usually a person of color or they may be involved in some petty crime of some sort. And I don't understand how it goes from that to a shootout that takes somebody's life. 
So I do think that there are some changes that that have to be made in the way, you know, police officers have to remain safe, you know, but do we have to really shoot to kill, you know, 30 rounds or whatever it is? You know, sometimes it's a crazy amount of shots to take down somebody that, you know, is, is really doesn't deserve to die. And I go back to that, to that, the word fear and not understanding the communities that you represent. That, that's mm. what it all comes down to, communications and fear. You know, show up at, at uh, think about what you're going to do when you get there. But there's a difference between uh, a shootout that, that's taking place and a pet at larceny that's taking place. And approach that, you know, in, in, you put it in perspective when you get to that location, you know. And, and I think once that gets communicated, and, and there's practice and, and, and this different types of training, then maybe we can cut back on that. I know what you're saying. I've seen that before. And uh, we need to communicate, diversify the department so they can understand the people that they represent. Yes, and I have to tell you, just keep seeing the same thing happen over and over and over again. And so I hope that more people like you come into the managing and being the heads of departments. I think that will will help uh, what's already there kind of shift into a new paradigm, hopefully, where both sides, again, can be safe. I don't want police officers to risk their lives going out to just to do their job every day. But at the same time, there's something about the training uh, that seems to be a little off to me. There has to be a better way to conserve human life than than what's happening. But, again, that's a, that's a big issue in a long conversation. So, um, and, but getting to this, the, and I, I do want to bring up this point because it's an important one. You know, we're all kind of talking about gun laws and especially in Ulster County, the incumbent sheriff is suggesting that gun owners be fully armed at all times. I believe in the second amendment. I don't, I, I don't carry a gun, but I believe in the second amendment. But I don't agree with the government's suggestion right now that teachers should be armed in schools. What would you do as a sheriff to prevent what happened in Columbine and in Florida from from happening here in Ulster County? Well, we we do have the SAFE Act that's in place already. Um, And and uh, my job is to uphold the laws. I am a uh, a gun owner, and I believe Mm -hmm. in the common sense Gun laws like background checks uh, before you purchase a weapon, to me, is just common sense. And, yeah. and, you know, laws that are similar to that, a lot of people believe are common sense, especially those in law enforcement. The, the issue, though, is, is how we go about explaining, um, you know, what the roles of law enforcement is and what the roles of, of our citizens are. When you make a comment that if you – have a, a, a pistol permit, make sure you have it at all times. Most people that have permits uh, for guns, they know what they can do and what they can't do. Um, there's a required like uh, course that they have to take. And when you make comments like that, though, when you're in a leadership position, there's a certain liability that comes with that. Number one, mm-hmm. uniform officers going into a chaotic shootout aren't going to know who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, so you're putting your own people in harm's way. Then the liability of someone using their weapon and shooting the wrong person based mm-hmm. upon leadership person saying, you know, go ahead and, and get involved. So, so to me, there, there's, there's questions of li- liability. How can I expect someone, uh, and I have 
over 25 years experience, you know, now 30, um, you know, going to the range and shooting and, and, and knowing what deadly physical force is, how can I, uh, and I've never shot anybody in my entire career, and there are a lot of officers that go through their careers without shooting anybody. How wow. can we expect normal citizens to have that responsibility, especially teachers who are supposed to teach our kids? How can we put that responsibility on them? And we shouldn't. We get paid to uh, enforce the law and uphold the peace, and that's what we should be doing. If you have an issue and a problem, you dial 911. That's what it's right. all about. That's why our system's in place. That's how we get paid, and that's why we get trained to do. Very important. Well, you just won my vote. You spent this, your entire career doing all of the things that you did, so, and you did not shoot one person. I mean, I think that's extraordinary, and I can tell that you're a man who uses your head at all times. Well, so most officers uh, don't. Careers. Wow, I really did not know that. That's an amazing fact, actually. That is an amazing fact to learn. There's also another thing that's upsetting me is what's, what's going on with ICE right now and immigration. And, you know, I'm hearing stories, especially happening in Ulster County, about people, some may be undocumented, some may be legal citizens, that are just being picked up and taken to ICE. You know, English is their second language. You as sheriff, how do you handle what's coming, the directive that's coming from Washington, from uh, President Trump, and the reality of, uh, of what's happening here, which is some of, some of these people have lived in our communities for 30, 40 years. You know, they've raised families. They've gone to our schools. They're, they're our neighbors. How, how would you handle this type of situation? Well, the first thing um, I would uh, point out that immigration laws – are handled by the federal government. We mm-hmm. need to elect individuals, and there needs to be uh, immigration you know, laws that understand the issues that all of us as a society are dealing with. You know, these federal agencies come into our county and make these arrests, and then they leave, and they leave us the mess. And yeah. so a couple of things. The, the, you know, they, they, they probably have American children that now they have the breadwinner that's gone and we're going to be responsible for and secondly, these individuals, if they have families here, always seem to get, you know, back. Nobody's talking about the cost of, you know, jailing them and sending them to their country. And that they're eventually they're going to they're gonna come back because they have family members here. And so now once they get back, now we're putting them in a box. We're putting that community in a box, which to me is a public safety issue. I cannot do my job without communicating with everybody in this county if there's a crime that occurred. If you're a witness to a crime and you can't contact law enforcement because you think you're going to be deported, then I can't do my job. And Mm -hmm. so to me, putting a community in a box like that is a public safety issue for all of us. And so um, my, you know, the, the one thing that I will tell you is that, you know, as the sheriff, I work for the people of the county of Ulster. I will, you know, I have to uphold the law and the Constitution, but as far as ICE is concerned, I do not work for ICE, and any minor incidents that happen uh, from within my department, I will not be contacting ICE for that. And hmm. uh, if ICE wants somebody, they're going to have to need a, a, uh, a government uh, or judge-ordered uh, search, uh, you know, warrant uh, to get the individual because that, that's the law. Due process is the most important thing to me. 
when you're in this country, whether you're documented or undocumented, you have the right to have due process of law. And that means the rights of every person in this country are the same. And that's what I intend to do as sheriff. Very strong words coming from Juan Figueroa. Anything else you would like to share before we close out the show, Juan, that we didn't cover? Yes, you know, this is a whole new arena for me involved in in county politics and running for office. The reason why folks like me don't run is because it, 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 you know, it costs a lot of money and people need to vote. People that can vote for others in the Latino community need to vote. And, and I stress that because they, they, you know, the Latino community does not come out and vote. They need to come out and vote. You know, I don't care who you vote for, but you have to vote. It's your duty they, as a citizen to vote. Do they think that their vote doesn't matter? I mean, what, what, or are yeah. they just working? It's hard to, you know. They, they just feel that their votes don't matter. They see what's going on nationally. They, they feel mm. like they're not. They care if they don't get involved in local politics, and they need to. The, the, the foundation of change starts at the bottom. These local elections are what starts change, and we need to get people out to vote. In March, uh, excuse me, September 13th, it's a Thursday, which is odd for a, um, a primary, but that's, that is the, the primary date between me and, and the incumbent, Paul Van Barkham. He gets two chances to take me out. That's his hometown, you know, his, his advantage. Why well, I have to win every single one of these races? And uh, he has, uh, he's running on a Republican, independent, and conservative line already, and he wants uh-huh. a Democratic. It's important to get everybody in, out and vote. And I, I agree with that 100%. And, again, I want to remind the listeners that the September 13th primary is, includes all state offices on the ballot this year, including governor and all 213 state lawmakers. So this is critical. And, and, you know, we can't just complain about the state of our world. We actually have to take some action. And the one thing we can do is just go to the voting booth and, make you know, make sure that our vote is cast. We have I'm some sorry, great candidates that are running this year, Jen Metzger, uh, you know, Antonio Delgado, uh, Pat Courtney Strong. Uh, you know, these folks are, are, are Democrats, and, they're, and they're, uh, they believe in our country and our way of life. And it's important. If you want change, you've got you to gotta go out and vote this uh, September. You have to. And it's not really asking for a whole lot. You know, it's just taking, a, a, you know, a small amount of time out of your schedule. Some people, I'm also hearing some crazy things going on. You may want to just double-check before you go out on uh, September 13th to make sure you're still registered. Know where you need to go to place that vote. If you need any assistance, if you need help, you know, in terms of transportation, getting to the polls, I'll tell you what, just email the show, gobehindthecurtain.com, and I will reach out and try to, you know, help people in any way that I can and spread the word on. Uh, everybody should get out and get that vote happening on September 13th. It, it really is, I think, a life or death situation in terms of the direction our country is going to take. So Juan Figueroa, it has really been a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you for your service, first of all, to our country. And I wish you the best of luck in your run for sheriff. I think you will bring a lot of positive policing to Ulster County. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Again, get out and vote on September 13th. 
I want to thank uh, Juan again and all those involved in his campaign for making this interview possible. If you want to find out more information about the show, go to www.gobehindthecurtain.com. The Icon Hunter, which is the memoir of Tetsula Hajitofi, which I wrote last year, is available at Amazon in paperback now. I'm so grateful to you all for tuning into the program. Follow us on Twitter at Behind the C-U-R-T-A-I. Help us spread the word about the show. Until next time, I'm sending you thoughts of peace.